Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. death scene or another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. one comes first. <laughs> I don't know that I like that. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio by the storyboard artist for the Coen Brothers for 20 years and counting, and also many other movies that, that we love and enjoy. He's also a film guy. He is J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Thank you very much, Nikki. Secret Dakota Ring. You betcha. And also in the studio live is the one, the only, and the keeper of the largest frame brain on the planet. If it has a frame around it, he knows something about it. He is the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and our friend, a film guy. He's George Williman. George. Rosebud. As you can see, his sprocket holes have not shrank. <laughs> now, but those of you who have dealt with nitrate film understand what we're talking about here, of course. But, uh, and my wife does, too. We There's all sorts of like <laughs> cinema guys out there going, oh, We are gathered here together today to talk about a film classic. It is Citizen Kane by the very, very young... Orson Welles. Ridiculously young. 25 years old. 25 young. years old and made a perfect movie uh, by uh, d- virtually everyone's account. I'm telling you, Isn't this, that fair to say? This movie right here, we have put off for, we have put off doing it for a while because it's so hard to talk about everything in a half hour. And one of the reasons we have our film list is because of this movie. Because this movie always becomes the number one film of all time. And uh, they're always numerically rating this movie as being, first there's yeah, this movie. Yeah, by number one film of all time. <laughs> yeah. It's always, <laughs> it always has a number attached to it. And when we were getting this list together years ago, and um, we were giving Bud Inski noogies in the restroom, <laughs> <laughs> he would say, but I think Citizen Kane needs to be number one. And, uh, and we'd say, no, no. We'd say, no, but you're number two. <laughs> Which reminds me that we actually have rules that uh, govern the selection and presentation of movies that we deem to be perfect. And they are quite strict and stringent indeed, gentlemen. And those rules are... Citizen Kane is a perfect film because it creates the world it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Citizen Kane retains its meaning and entertainment value. And Citizen Kane will never be placed in any preferential or numerical order. It stands perfect by its own and on our list, it's not going to get any kind of numerical rating. That's right. They're all good. It inspired us to come up with a list and rule for number four. That was Citizen Kane because everybody that wanted their back scratched out there was saying, well, I think Citizen Kane's the number one film of all time. Right. Yes. Body, body, As they shook their glass. You know? Right. So but but Citizen, Citizen Kane is actually a film that's, that's even lucky it survived because it had a very hard row to hoe, as it were. Well, he, uh, Orson Welles came out of radio, right? It doesn't right? hurt when 
Orson Welles was able to upset the whole world with a one <laughs> radio show that everybody swears went on for eight and nine hours is only it's like 45 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is the War of the Worlds. World, the, yes. the, and the, he was able to do the scorched earth policy in Hollywood at the time at RKO, I believe was the studio. RKO. And that, you know, War of the Worlds was two years before Citizen Kane. So he was only like 23. When he did that. When he upset. Everybody, but of course, you know, a lot of twenty-three-year-olds are good at upsetting a lot of people. I mean, you know, but I mean, they don't. <laughs> the nature of the thing, they don't necessarily upset whole cities, and, and they don't have they don't have people trying to drink rat poison or jump out of windows. or saw off their table legs, you know, and use in, them for in case fire. You don't know, uh, War of the wood. Worlds was a mock, uh, a mock. Uh, I don't know what to call it, drama, dramatized that, uh, radio broadcast, or like an actuality radio broadcast that made it sound like Martians were mm-hmm. landing and invading at least the United States, if not the world. World. Yeah. I don't, I, it was a really creative way because they, they were they were doing the Wells book, the H. G. Wells, no relation, uh, book, yeah. and they wanted to find a really fascinating way of doing it and coming up with this idea of of the first half of it being a radio broadcast of the landing of the Martians. The second half of the story is is much more standard radio yeah. drama. You Which know, they, was what he was doing at the time with Mercury Theater, right? And he had a slot every week with this radio show, and he just happened to make this radio show that upset everybody. Now, of course, at the same time he was doing that, he was also the voice of The Shadow oh, on The really? Shadow Radio I didn't radio realize program. that. Yes, he did The Shadow for several years. So um, this this young man who who had a, just a great flair, obviously, for dramatization mm-hmm. of all kinds, um, not only wrote, he wrote Citizen Kane, correct? Right, along with Herman J. Mankiewicz. Okay, and, and directed it directed and it. starred in it starred in at it. the age of 25. At the age of 25. Now, the, one of the cool things to do nowadays is to look at how Orson Welles portrays himself at, say, 60 or 70 years old in K- Citizen Kane, and then compare it to the wine commercials that he was doing. <laughs> Those <laughs> are know. priceless. But we, we, we were talking about that. We looked at him, actually. And the truth is, like these little nitpicking points that he was making about the script and the copy, he was actually... Right. He was right. <laughs> but what I'm saying is his idea how he was going to look in 40, 50 years, and then you can actually say, oh, here's the vision, and here's how it was. Well, he didn't realize he was going to put on 300 pounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> George, would you give us a bit? Now, we, we should start out by saying that this is based virtually exactly on the life. Well, no. Really okay, exactly I'm sorry. No. But there's it's, it's similarities. It's very highly influenced it's by the life. It's a very big satire. Right. A very highly influenced yeah. on the life of William Randolph Hearst. The uh, m- publishing magnate. Right. He's yeah. a big and the, boss the film, man. the film begins with the death of Charles Foster Kane. Which is a really cool scene. And as he dies, he utters one word, rosebud. And Rose it's overheard by several people, and mm-hmm. it is known. Yeah, he drops this little snow globe, and it rolls off, and it breaks. Yes. And and then you were treated to a newsreel of his life, and then we see that the crew who who make the newsreel are like, yeah, we need a little more. We need to find another angle to really, you know, really cinch this thing. Uh, what about this last word of his, Rosebud? What did that mean? So they send this reporter Now, for those of you who have attention to... deficit disorder, you can just watch that little news clip and kind of watch your version of Citizen King because he tells you the whole movie right there in the, note, yeah. in the, the whole thing. <laughs> so now, those are those who can't keep up with this picture and criticize it and have a hard time. Just watch the first 10 minutes and then act like you know what you're doing because it, a lot of it, I think he, he had that kind of vision in his head that there was going to be people who didn't have the patience to watch the whole movie. <laughs> 
But it, uh, well, a lot of it also is, is sort of, you know, painting the walls and moving the furniture and getting, getting a lot of exposition out of the way in that newsreel about his past. Yeah. Because a lot of the things in the newsreel are then related later as the reporter goes out and begins to talk to Kane's surviving friends and associates about you know, what this rosebud what it, what, means. What rosebud could mean. And as they go along, you know, they begin to learn different things about his married life, his his ways, his you know, the, the, he would set up these big. Um, as a newspaper editor, he you know thought he was like this crusading man for the little guy. You know, when actually he just wanted to make himself feel better. You know, <laughs> and and how he you know he sort of snubs his first wife and takes up with this you know this little gal who who he then tries to turn into an entertainer and she's not that good and and it goes on and on and finally it ends up at down at his palatial home in Florida Xanadu where he's talking to the servants and they still get they never he never finds out what Rosebud is he's like well maybe it's something he lost maybe it's nothing I don't know you know we do know that he's a big man and he's very important they leave and and he never finds out what Rosebud is but the audience does we're not going to say any more about that yeah. because if there's that one person out there who doesn't know, I don't want to spoil it's it. It's worth the reveal. Now, we can, we can talk about reveal. the backstory on this movie, how he became so controversial and, you know, who – everything was based on. But honestly, we're here to talk about the movie itself. The only thing I, I can reflect on all that backstory about how the movie is made and all that is that I can tell you when I first started going to Los Angeles that there were people who still hated this man. <laughs> That's a testament to your power. <laughs> and I was probably in my late twenties, early thirties, and we were working on Barton Fink, and uh, and I somehow went to some party, and I could still see this guy's cheeks getting cherry red because he was still upset with Orson Welles. Wow. <laughs> Welles did a lot to to not ingratiate himself uh, with a lot of Hollywood people, and they they turned on him. I mean, he had probably one of the most promising careers in Hollywood. And within like five or six years, it was bad. Why wasn't it? It was because he turned because he was willing to sort of like tell the truth, or like about he, Hearst, or I mean, no, what was it, it? was. I mean, the Hearst might have had. He was his own worst enemy too. I think because he had a. From what he I've seen, a, he, he had was, a really bad habit of not finishing anything. He'd get this project up and running, and then he'd get to like you know three quarters of the way through, and then he'd lose interest and he'd but, go and he'd start on the next one. And leave it for someone else. Citizen Kane was he, uh, Robert Wise. When I got to speak to him one time, he told me he said that this was the only project that Orson Welles was actually sticking with. And, and Robert Wise is he was his, his film was editor. editor. Oh, he is really? the director of the day the Earth stood the, yeah. still, and he also cut Magnificent Ambersons, right? Yep. And he said that when, that was the only time that. The reason why he was so brilliant in that movie, because that was the, like George said, that was the only time he stuck. And this is what Robert Rise told me when I met him. He said that was the only thing where he actually concentrated on making the movie, Citizen King. That's his complete. We don't know too much about uh, Touch of Evil or anything, but it would seem that he had followed through later in life on that picture. But after that, he was just this loose cannon out there. Well, a lot of things happen, and even on Touch of Evil, a lot of times the, the projects would be taken from him. Because he would start diddling around with the film, and he'd diddle and diddle and diddle for weeks and weeks. You know, and you got to finish these things. And the problem was since most of the time he didn't have the money to, to bankroll these things himself, he'd be bankrolled by other people, and they would get tired of waiting for him, and they'd say, well, let's, let's get this done. You know, like Mr. Arkadin, he never really got to finish that one. And only recently they've kind of reconstructed what they feel is the way the film should be. And, and again, Touch of Evil, um, they went back to his notes – 
he left copious notes about that one that were about not about all of them or just um no um, about touch just, just yeah. about touch of evil there were pages and pages of notes and they went back and they were able to follow that note so that's probably the film Nexus and Kane probably now the the restoration of that is closest to what he intended it, it's hard to say because he's not with us anymore yeah, there's still a. Film and when out did there he die? Not to put you on the spot uh, off the top of your head, but late seventies. Late seventies, yeah. So it's uh, we're talking about Citizen Kane, the nineteen forty one. Before uh, the war, now. Yeah. And it's been documented um, that he had went back to the very same people he offended and went out of his way to offend and alienate to ask them for money in his later projects. <laughs> did they give it to him? No, it no, probably took great he pleasure in not giving it to him. There are, like, uh, video interviews of him saying that he was talking about how he got addicted to this very expensive paint box called Movies, and he just couldn't <laughs> shake it. Now, we're talking about a radio guy who had mastered that medium. This movie is loaded with radio stuff. You hear making sure that there's a certain spike or a timber in somebody's voice in the right place when – that are acting. Uh, I mean, there's marvelous, marvelous stuff. The biggest thing about Citizen Kane is its scale. You know, when you're dealing with cinematic scale, this is the movie to start on because it's a sweeping, epic adventure on where things start kind of small and evolve into this enormous scale. And of course, the person with the most enormous scale of all is Orson Welles, who I can't imagine. I was telling Nikki this when we were watching this. I can't imagine Orson walking into a room. And not suddenly getting everybody's attention because of his magnificent voice. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful voice. I don't know if anybody, his presence and everything must have been just like a bolt of lightning everywhere he went. And he probably obviously knew this and could just take over things. Well, and it's so interesting that, I mean, he kind of calls the shots right from the beginning because the first title after the little RKO, the cool little RKO tower thing, uh, it Which says. It's still cool to this right, day. It is. You know, the first title says, a Mercury production by Orson Welles. Mm. So right off the bat, he says, this is mine. And this but, is going to be, this is I'm my thing, and back off. <laughs> but, and however, most of the players, the Mercury players, are stock players that he uses throughout his life. Yeah. Agnes Moorhead, Joseph Cotton. Which is Endora uh, from, from Bewitched, Bewitch, just yes. in case you're wondering, yes. These are very prominent actors, that, that and uh, John Houseman was... Uh, I worked think, with the Mercury Theater. Yeah. yeah, these were Mercury Theater people from the radio scene, and then he brought most of them into Citizen Kane. And, and yeah, most of these people in Citizen Kane that were from his Mercury company, this was their their first film. Huh. And, and and yeah, a lot of them, uh, Ray Collins, who plays Ray Collins, Jim Geddes, huge is in, is career. in um, Touch of Evil. He was also in Perry Mason years later, right. I think. Oh, and yeah. Detective and, and one of my favorite little guys, Gus Schilling, who's almost completely forgotten today. He was a, a comic and a second banana in hundreds and hundreds of films. Gus Schilling is in pretty much every one of Orson Welles' films from from Citizen Kane to, to Touch, of, Touch of Evil, uh, which, he, which he died during the filming of that. Uh-huh. I don't know why. But even in like in, in his film of Macbeth. It's not that you don't uh, know why he died. Is that you don't know why I don't he was know why in each of the any, films. I mean, just, yeah. he, <laughs> Welles obviously knew him from somewhere and just liked him because he's got a really great kind of goofy face, you know, mm. interesting delivery. But, yeah, he used him all the time. It was an absolute treat because uh, usually we end up watching these movies separately. Or you gentlemen have seen them uh, probably enough times that there's a certain you know, <laughs> you know, this one facility movie, you have it. But This is one movie and I can watch quite a few times before I'm going to get tired of it. Well, listen, now, I had seen it years and years ago and uh, Jay Todd and I, I had the chance to watch it together. And what a treat that was to be watching it and have you point out 
for example, you, you, you mentioned something that I don't think I would have noticed, that there were always at least two, often three layers of action in every single shot. It was a still shot. People would walk in and out and be, but there was always something behind as well. There are layers and layers. Oh, and they're all in phenomenal. focus. Yes. Because Greg Tolan was a big deal about this deep focus. This is a lot of light on a soundstage here on this movie. And it no is close-ups. still sharp, sharp, sharp. I don't know how they got the sharpness of, of uh, well, generally, you know, Wells, if he did a close-up, you knew it in this picture. It was very obvious. But generally, people walked up to the camera, and then most people just will hang with that, but not, not Wells. He's moving that camera even when people are crossing in front of the lens, and then they step into a shadow, the very famous projection scene that everybody's emulated through the years, and... And uh, George was saying something about the other day how his registration of either characters or light is always like the window in the beginning of the movie yeah, is constantly well, registered. Yeah, there, there's all the way through there will be placement of characters that will then fade from one scene to the other, and that character will either fade with it or stay. Uh, I would say like the, the scenes where Joseph Cotton is relating his history, the character of Cotton's uh, Cotton's character stays on the screen after the shot fades out, and he fades out later. But yeah, during the opening when the camera's going through Xana, the wreck of Xanadu, uh, the, the bedroom window of Kane is always kept in the exact same position in the upper right-hand corner of the frame. And, and even you pointed out there was a reflection of right, water. Right, there's one shot of the reflection, and you see the, you know, the, the point of the castle upside down in the water, but that frame is still exactly matched to where it was in the previous Now, shot. I can't remember. Is the light on in that room, or is it off? The light is on. It goes yeah, off. That's what I thought. At a certain point. But it's registered all the time. Now, that's some doing. I'll tell that you, is, even back in the old days. That is astonishing. And, and now, remember, he, he was surrounded by people that were perhaps even better than he was at that time, like Greg Tolan, who was the cinematographer, Bernard Herrmann. Um, they had almost every shot had what we called on-axis throw. The Coens really like that, where they go deep, and everything works within that. And you plot that. That perspective point as deep in the frame as you can, and you work that action all the way up to the front or all the way to the back. That's tough because you got to light everything, you got to orchestrate all the movement. Uh, but that's some bold stuff for 1941. Well, and another thing that's really bold is the um, the dialogue of the film itself and the way the characters speak to each other because it's it's very realistic and it's sort of the beginning of something that even like Robert Altman became famous yes. for these overlapping dialogues. And I believe that we have a little. Didn't you bring that projector with you? It should be over there. Is it by the, oh, by the saw? Wait a minute. Is it over uh, there by the I saw? I can never find it. Where is it? Well, oh, no. Oh, oh, watch that. Watch, 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 Here we go. Oh, Thread it up wait, nicely. Oh, watch that Wait, saw. I think I got it. There we go. Trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure. To see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. Looking after the little guy. There are times in the film where there are three or four characters talking over each other, different threads of, of dialogue. You have to really listen to, you know, and he's not, 
He's not, you know, hand-holding you as this dialogue is playing out. You this is radio drama, it. too, here. we yeah, got a little bit is, of the radio drama bleeding into this. Yeah, these are things this. that he brought with him from radio and stage. He'd been doing a lot of stage work, too. And these are just sort of naturalistic things uh, that he brought with him into this This film. theme really comes into play of him, you know, like looking after the common man. Because that's sort of like his, what was in a declaration of principles declaration that he of principles, set yeah. out. You know, that, that it was going to be, you know, to tell the truth and to be honest, which he really... By the end, no, it all it, it actually was you know, the world on my terms. Mm. Those are the only terms. Now, how familiar mm-hmm. does that sound? <laughs> well, yeah, Jay Todd, it sounds real familiar whenever I hear you talking. <laughs> no, I'm just <laughs> I tease, I tease. You're a man who knows what he wants. <laughs> all right, Nikki. <laughs> Nikki likes Range Wars. <laughs> Don't fight over that stove. Don't fight over that stove. Um. <laughs> I have no. to say, though, it was an extra, extra treat to be able to watch it with you, Jay Todd. It had uh, just, I feel that um, when I originally saw it, I I was somewhat mind-numbed by it. I didn't get a lot of the, the overarching principles and the... Uh, this uh, is a movie that you're going well, to be getting for a long time. Yeah, and and so. <laughs> well, talk about mind-numbing. Um, I, the, I was just going to mention, the first time I saw it, my dad and I went to see it. At the Little Art Theater down here in Yellow Springs. No. This has been back in the late 70s, I guess. They ran it with the Magnificent Ambersons. And by the end of those two films, we were so exhausted from this Wells, you know, this, this sort of Wells orgy. And we just kind of went home. We were like, hana, hana, hana. I just, I, and to see that film on the big screen is, is, is mine. And I have There's seen that so film much. on the big screen. It's just too much. It's very vertical. Its imagery is not only deep, but it's tall. Um, you know, like I said before, they got these tremendous long throws in this picture that had the characters working way in super, super deep close, I mean, super deep focus, and then the person will step up the lens, and then they're not there because they're in shadow or something. And uh, not only does that work on a level, but he doesn't go into real wide horizontal images of of uh, landscapes. Yeah, landscapes like that, and you're. Your screen time, your screen direction isn't left to right a lot of times in this picture. It's, no, it's front to back. Yeah, it's, it's it's very counter Hollywood at the time, you know, for action. And one of the things about Citizen Kane that influenced me right from the very beginning was their use of storyboarding. The whole opening sequence is storyboarded down to just just the minute detail with notes and I went over the storyboards and just poured over them back when I think George gave them to me he had some book of them and all the way through that movie there's these beautiful montages of progress century of progress and mm-hmm. industrial progress you know newspapers blah, 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 and they're yakking and celebrating all that stuff was storyboarded and uh, Citizen Kane was one of the first people to kind of borrow from what Disney was doing at the time because when he was doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he storyboarded that until just recently I found out that they didn't even have a script when they were doing Snow White and the story, uh, Seven Dwarfs. They s- went completely off of that. And Kane, ha- or excuse me, Orson Welles has his nose all over Hollywood. He was looking for the best people and the best ways to get things done. Right. In and fact, one of the first things he did when he got to Hollywood and he got to RKO's, he went to the RKO Film Library and he and Mankiewicz just sat down and started watching all these films. Hmm. And watching and watching because they they had no idea. Wells had no idea how to direct a movie. He was a radio guy and a stage director. 
He didn't know about directing. A he film. really got it though, and didn't they, he? No, he invented stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot. I find that there are a lot of times where there are people who come into the and do a film and don't know film, and what they make is absolutely brilliant because they don't know the rules. Mm-hmm. And that's been commented by a lot of film critics about this movie is that he didn't know the rules, so he made up his own rules. Right. And the fluidness of this film, the way it kind of rambles on Well, it's through. very nonlinear. The idea of a nonlinear storyline, which is somewhat common now. We have things like Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction and some of Altman's films and that they try to you know, they tell a story out of order. Uh, this was kind of groundbreaking for that. You know? really One of the was. things that pulled this movie through was, was like some of the things we just talked about and the tone of this picture would – would would get in front of you and kind of pull you along, and then all of a sudden you're writing this tone that they that, that is Citizen Kane, and then it will just it will just kind of gently land, and he'll bring you into something else, open up another door, and uh, uh, it's just fascinating. I don't know how many times you can watch this film without learning something. You're listening to Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. We're talking about Citizen Kane, the 1941, you know, I just want to say opus of, uh, of Orson Welles. Just really an achievement in every form and uh, one that can be revisited in multiple viewings. Now, uh, I'm going to watch it again, J. Todd. Even just uh, got to see it with you, but even just the discussion today has pointed out more things that are completely worth seeing. And I kind of think this film, as we, we mentioned before when we were talking about Andrew Nichols, uh, Andrew Nichol and um, Gattaca, how that was his first film. That was his first film, and a very brilliant piece of work it is. But he hasn't really been able to live up to that. Well, Citizen Kane has been, kind of been that for Wells, too, because you know Citizen Kane was such an amazing piece of work, especially for a 25-year-old, for his first film. How are you ever going to top I don't it? think he knew how to even... I don't think he knew what he was doing enough to top himself. Well, honestly. I think I, I think he felt that Magnificent Ambersons was going to top it, and it probably would have, but we'll never know because that film was basically taken away for a minute and destroyed. You know, forty-five minutes or more were cut from it, and those those minutes have been lost. And Lady from Shanghai. Oh, just and Lady from Shanghai. Now, is, now keep in mind, there's brilliance in Lady from Shanghai with, with a lot of stuff. We, we we're going to talk about that movie uh, a couple Fridays from now. But there's also a touch of evil. But all these were kind of really great conventional movies. Nothing on the scale, as I repeat, scale of Citizen Kane from convention, technique, narrative. It was just to this day, it's still very fresh. It it, it achieves all the rules, don't you think, George? Well, let's talk about it. As for rule number one, you're Xanadu, yeah, Xanadu, and and you know, and and well, the thing is beautiful about it, not in creating the world, but there's all that newsreel footage, and while some of it is actual footage they got from the stock library, there are shots in there of like Kane with Hitler and Kane with Neville Chamberlain and stuff like that. We're all created, and then they went and they actually took the negatives and they ran them. You know, they put them in there, put sand in their hand, and ran the film through it to scratch it up <laughs> to make it look like old damaged footage. I mean, it's very oh, forward really? thinking, yeah, because it looks, you know, it looks real. And um, it's, it's sustained without it's, question. Yeah. yeah. Even in the movie itself, they're trying to deal with Kane after he's long gone. You mm-hmm. know, so it's it's like a movie within a movie on these rules. They're trying to deal with Kane after he's been expired. How do you explain right, him? Explain this man. He's bigger than life. <laughs> and twice as what ugly. What we're still doing with this movie? How do you explain <laughs> this movie? And as for rule number three, I have to say that um, you know, despite cultural changes retaining its entertainment value, um, I'm getting more out of this as a you know an adult person. I watched it when I was much younger, and it just didn't have the layers of meaning as far as the story goes. But now the story has much more meaning, and also I can appreciate so much more the actual craftsmanship, right. the art. 
has, it's a very adult theme, uh, mostly, you know, most kids. Very learn. timeless theme. Yeah. And before we go, we got him in. We, we left him out of this, and I'm, I'm sorry that we did, but one of the people that came in this, it was his first motion picture, Bernard Herrmann. Yes. Who wrote that wonderful evoca- evocative music that runs throughout this, and then from then on, just film after film after film. Psycho, Psycho, North by Northwest. Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh Which Uh, is so, so good Taxi Driver. Cape Fear. We're going to have a show just about Bernard Herrmann. We should. Gentlemen, if uh, anyone wants to write to you, they can do that and you're happy. We get a lot of really lovely emails. Perfectmovie.net. And you can just uh, stop by the website. Perfectmovie.net. And remember, as Citizen Kane, they repeated in Citizen Kane, Old age is the only disease you don't want to get cured of. <laughs> hey, we'll see you next time. We'll all be a little older and wiser, chemically perfect, right here on 91.3. Bye, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.